0: Alright, good morning, everybody. Good morning. I hear this Lord's Day, let's uh, pray. We are about to commence our part four, part four, yeah, of the series on on worship. So, let's pray and ask the Lord for His help. Our most Holy Father in heaven, we praise You this Lord's Day, and we thank You for calling um, us to You uh, to worship. Uh, this is the open door of worship, this uh, holy day, Your day, uh, where You have. Join us to yourself, and so as we spend some time now looking at the, the, cult, the um, confession of sin and the, in light of the reading of the law and the reading of the gospel, we hope that, uh, we pray that for your help that you would enable us to understand more deeply and to really cherish this aspect of the worship service, that we may uh, find more joy in it and glorify you uh, more fully through that. So we ask for your help this morning, our in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, in this fourth part, we are talking about the reading of the law, confession of sin, and the reading of the gospel. And uh, usually, in the reading of the gospel, that includes, uh, it functions as an assurance of pardon for, for our sins in light of our confession. And as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, worship is done in accordance with the dialogical principle, right? That God speaks... And uh, first word, he takes the initiative and we respond and then he speaks and we respond. So the speaking, the first speaking that comes to us is the reading of the law. And then our speaking to to God is in the confession of sin. And the next thing that happens is that God then speaks to us a gospel word and uh, assures us of the forgiveness of sins. And in response, what do we do? we sing a song of praise to thank the Lord for His, his forgiveness. So that's the, the scheme of what happens in this section of the, of the worship service. And This is one of the hallmarks of a Reformed liturgy. And as we'll mention a bit later, this comes right up front generally of the, of the service, and we'll talk about why that is. But for the Reformed churches, historically, the people gathered in the presence of the Holy God, the Holy Triune God, we hear His perfections read to us in the law. We hear of what's required of us, and we immediately recognize our status of unrighteousness apart from Him. And, and that, then He reads a gospel word to talk about how He has supplied that righteousness, and we praise Him in light of that. So that's the that's the kind of overview. Now, why why has God included in what is demonstrated for us in the Scriptures that when God's people assemble, His law is read? Why is that? And why do we have this confession of sin? Why do we have the gospel? Uh, uh, for a lot of people, this is a, an unexpected part of the worship service when they when they join a. Reformed congregation. Normally this kind of idea of confession is associated wrongly with uh, Roman Catholicism. So what's different about what happens here when we say that we confess our sins before God? Well, the first thing is uh, God, in, in one sense for our benefit, knows the weakness of our sinful state, but also even our consciences, that our consciences can be Uh, can be weak and can accuse us and can almost terrify us. Uh, But God speaks this word of gospel assurance to us that we may be oriented in the worship service uh, toward him, not with fear, but knowing that he is our good father and is pleased to welcome us. Now, Satan's principal activity is to encourage condemnation and shame. In, in God's people, with the hope that being filled with shame, we might turn away from God and, and cause us to multiply in our sinfulness. The funny thing is, when, when our consciences accuse us of sin, if we don't bring that to the Lord, it will multiply our sin. But God, in, of having summoned us to himself, causes us to confess by reading to us his law, He wants our consciences to be clean, for us to confess and know our forgiveness, so that in the worship service, we can hear His Word as it comes to us as our Father, as our covenant God, and we His covenant people. As uh, Jonathan says in the book there, if you've read the chapter ahead for this week, he says that week in and week out meaning on the Lord's Day, God puts to death the old man with the law and makes alive and sustains the new creation, the new man in Christ. And he does this through the gospel. Now that's quite an amazing thing to understand that that's actually what's being enacted, in a sense, in, the, in, in this section of the worship service. But as I mentioned, in, in modern church context, this is almost always absent. Almost always absent. And... In general, there's almost no mention or reference of sin at all in the worship service, let alone a reading of the law and a public confession of sin. Uh, Many from that perspective will argue that, well, the new covenant is a covenant of grace. And so a reading of the law would be going back to the old covenant, going back to legalism. But you have to remember this, this that, that kind of belief would be a fundamental misunderstanding of grace and the gospel. You see, the, the condemnation of the law and the need for forgiveness is precisely the reason that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And without understanding our need for Christ, we do not understand the gospel, because Christ died for sins. Now, others have said that Christ died as an example of selflessness and love, that that would motivate our hearts now to uh, change our our conduct. Others have said that Christ died as a ransom price that's paid to Satan because we're in bondage and owned by Satan because of sin. And when Jesus dies, that that essentially frees us as hostages from, from Satan. And others say that Christ died... And in his death, by raising from the dead, he conquered death in the, in the abstract. And therefore, we are able to have life. Now, a part of that last statement is, is true, that last idea. But what all of these views in, have in common is a denial of the central tenet of the gospel. That Christ died to pay the penalty for our specific sins when he died on the cross. His death was an atoning death, where he received punishment in our place for what our sins deserve. And that is how he defeats death. Not death in the abstract, but death as it is the punishment, the wages of sin is death, and he receives those wages in his body as we should have in ours. And so he didn't just raised from the dead in the abstract, he rose from the dead having paid the penalty for our particular sins. So to say that the law and confession has no place in the Christian life is to really misunderstand the gospel because the message of the gospel is that Christ both fulfilled the law and paid the penalty for our breaking it. Uh, another reason churches avoid talking about this is because they tend to think that it could be uncomfortable or awkward for church members, and especially for visitors, uh, to hear, uh, you know, this, it may be odd, and it may be potentially uncomfortable, uh, but we don't organize our worship of God around what people think or feel. We organize our worship around God based on what He has said in His Word, what He has commanded of us. And it's precisely this oddness, this stand-outness, and this discomfort that's brought by the law that is actually part of the beauty of the gospel, (laughs) that sinners have been made repentant by God's Spirit. And now they may stand publicly together and freely confess their sins, knowing that God will cover all of their guilt and shame. That is quite extraordinary. What a testimony that people can do that. That is the power of Christian worship, is we are worshiping a God who we know can actually forgive those sins. So to hide and cover over and pretend that we are all uh, righteous in and of ourselves is really to be a Sunday gathering of hypocrites. No, the gospel is we publicly proclaim our sins and ask God that he would forgive us. And for Jesus' sake, He does. That is something that is not to be put in a corner or masked over and hidden, but is to be a central part of our worship with God. Uh, let's, so that's a bit of a, an, an overview. Let's have a look at some of the individual elements. So the first thing that will happen, so after God has called us to worship and uh, we've prayed in a prayer of invocation that um, I think Brendan will do this week, then God speaks His uh, word of greeting. And blessing, and then we sing, we sing praise to the Lord for He has welcomed us into His presence. Right after that, the law of God will be read to us. So, what is the function of this? Why is the law being read to us? Well, I'm sure you've all had uh, this experience where you're having a pretty good day. You woke up, you got dressed, you're looking pretty sharp. But later in the afternoon, you look in the mirror. And there's dried egg on your moustache from, 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 from your breakfast. There's uh, spinach in your teeth from lunch. And coffee stains all the way down your expensive suit jacket. Now, in your mind, you had a perception of how you looked based on what you looked like in the morning. But when you looked in the mirror, you were given an accurate reflection of reality. And that's the function of God's law. It's held up like a mirror and if you think of it like that, when you hear it just now, by God's by the power of God's Spirit, you will feel the, the law of God searching to the depths of your heart. It's a scary thing that. It's like the the all-seeing eye. <laughs> it, it will pierce behind any veil you have put up. It, it will pierce behind your your what people think of you in public, it'll pierce behind what you think of your, you yourself. It'll appear, uh, appear behind what other people who know you think of you. It will pierce b- behind everything that you've, every record you've ever managed to cover up, or whatever it might be. The law pierces right down the word of God, right down so much so that it's speaking of division of joint and marrow, something that seems almost indivisible in the body that it will look right to the recesses of everything and, and show us an accurate evaluation of who we are. And what's the verdict of that part, the reading of the law? The verdict is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not kept His law perfectly. In fact, we sin against God regularly. Now, We may be tempted to think we are righteous, in and of ourselves, but when God's law is read to us, it lays bare the transcript, the testimony of our infidelity in the week. And so, we have also not only do we realize that we have fallen short, but when we see the law, we see what's expected of us uh, in the week ahead because God's moral law is enduring, it doesn't change. After every Lord's Day, his, his law is the same from, from age to age and, and forever. And our warrant for this reading of the law comes from right from the beginning in the Old Testament. We have the law being a part of God's covenantal conversation, meaning the conversation that's had between God and His covenant people. Uh, at Sinai, God summons His people. And what what does he do after? He says, right, now that I have constituted you as my covenant people, here is the covenant code. Here is the conduct that I expect of my people that I have made. And this is how you are to conduct your lives. Now this reading of the law has different functions and effects depending on whether you fall into one of uh, two groups of people whether you know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and whether you do not. So for the person who's an unbeliever, someone who's not believed the gospel, the law is meant to terrorize the conscience. So if if the Spirit of God is working in that person's heart to draw them to God, they will begin to sense an enormous chasm between the perfection of God's holiness and their own life of sin and rejection of God's commandments. So it's meant to, uh, to, to shock them out of apathy and uh, sinfulness and hatred towards God. And for the believer, the law reminds the believer of his inability to fulfill the whole law and therefore to continue to look to Christ. Because when we see ourselves as we are in and of ourselves, we have no other option but then to look to, to Christ for righteousness. We, we, our eyes are lifted uh, uh, to, to where our help comes from. It reminds us of the perfection of Christ's work, how he has done everything required to obtain the status of holiness before God. And then it's a, it functions to point us to the life that we are to lead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not with perfection, because this body is imperfect and, and corrupt. We long for the day when we will have a our new creation bodies and we will not even be able to sin. We do long for that day. But even now, God has put his Holy Spirit in us that we are able to truly begin to walk in the good works that He's prepared for us beforehand. That's Ephesians two eight to ten. This idea that God has prepared good works beforehand, that we may begin to walk in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. So for the believer, you can you can see that the, the function of the law is to obviously convict us of our sin, but to keep us looking to Christ and to show us the way in which we should walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to read with you a little bit through Westminster Confession of Faith, 19.6. And we'll, we'll see a little bit of, of how this functions. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to therefore thereby be justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering... Also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves by it they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer light, the sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience." isn 't that 's quite incredible? I, I recommend you go home later today and read that Westminster Confession of faith nineteen point six all the way through it 's quite a bit longer and uh, and, and see what the, what the law does for a believer a really nice concise uh, statement. so we can see what a necessary part of meeting with god 's people the reading of the law is. next we have confession of sin so God has now spoken to us, how do we respond? Well, what more can we do having heard God's holy law than to confess that we have not abated fully, that we have sinned against God? And that's exactly what we do in that prayer that we read together. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have not done, by what we've left undone, all of that. And we have not loved you with our whole hearts and our neighbors as ourselves, all that kind of thing. what arrogance it would be to think that we could have God's law read to us and go, that describes me. Uh, That's not at all the case. Rather, we should fall into the dust with repentance and sorrow at our sin. Now, this is not, as some have recommended as an idea, that when we, even using language like humble ourselves to the dust, we do not mean... To be self-abusive, to, um, to think that we should strike ourselves with uh, whips and pain and c- continue to harp on about how worthless and useless and so on we are. No, this is, there's no, there's no atonement you can make for your sin. Uh, you rather, you have to humble yourself in repentance and realize, I am not righteous. I need the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this duty to confess is very clear from Scripture. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, we saw the the law being read and the whole people were taught the law, instructed in the law by the Levites. What What does it say in Nehemiah in response to this? It says the people wept. When they were instructed by the Levites about the law, they wept when they realized how they had been unfaithful to the Lord in spite of his faithfulness. And we see in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a long, chapter-long confession of sin. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, David's personal confession, uh, although it's personal there and written in the psalm, those psalms are used in the temple for public confession uh, in corporate worship services. So clearly we have a biblical mandate for why we should confess sin in light of God's law. But some will say... Why should we confess our sins if God has forgiven us in Christ? Well, we all know that we continue to sin despite being new creations because of the corruption of this body. But we commit our sins in time, daily, week to week, all the way through our lives. So what kind of claim could we make about having actual genuine new life if we were not repentant in an ongoing way for the sins that we commit. Luther essentially, slightly paraphrasing here, but said something along the lines that repentance is the Christian life, a turning from sin and a turning to the Lord. We are committing our sins in time, and although Christ's death paid for all our sins, past, present, and future, Uh, We are right to ask God to forgive us our sins. And we know this because Jesus taught us to pray this when we speak to our Father in heaven. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've uh, trespassed against us. So this this is clear. It's teaching us that we are both sinners and justified at the same time. This is the, that's the nature of the gospel, that we, even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Now, not only is confession right, but it is a blessing. It is a relief of guilt and condemnation, not in a therapeutic way in which any unbeliever knows that if they've done something wrong, it causes a fracture in their relationship with someone, and when they say to them, I'm sorry, and that person forgives them, there's a uh, reunification, often, and a sense of relief. Now, that's, it's obviously right to apologize for what's wrong, but a lot of people do that for a therapeutic purpose. They just want to feel better. They don't actually necessarily care about having transgressed against another person. They do it just to feel better. Now, we don't confess our sins to God just to feel better, but it is an extraordinary joy to confess our sins and to hear from the Lord that he has forgiven us. And so David, we we have got a really good picture of this from David. How's this for an image? Psalm 32, he says, and the way I translate the Hebrew from this is, my bones crumbled to dust within me. So right to the core of him, his, his guilt for not confessing his sin was eating away at his frame internally until it turned to dust. He was suffering tremendously. But then in verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, to God, and confessed his transgression. Now, of course, we should confess our sins daily. When you pray to the Lord, when you read the scriptures, you should confess your sins specifically and ask God for, repentance, for uh, forgiveness. But there is something particular about the people of God doing this together as well. Because there you are enjoying fellowship and communion with the Lord in your, in your personal life. But here, as a, as a people, we stand and we confess our sins together. That you may look around and see that every one of us is alike. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We are unclean in need of cleansing. Uh, as we will see next, a sinful people... Uh, with, a God, with a God who has redeemed them is really the image of the church, that he, as our covenant God, provides us with covering for our sin and righteousness through Jesus Christ. Uh, as evidence for the fact that this is in practice right from the early church, we can have a look at something that's written in the Didache. Now, the Didache is the earliest document of, of uh, church teaching that we, that we have, and dedicate just means uh, teaching, essentially. Uh, if you've watched the show The Mandalorian, you may or may not have, but uh, the Mandalorians have a, have a phrase, they say, this is the way. Now, in the didache, it's the instruction is, confess your sins in church and do not go to prayer with a guilty conscience. This is the way of life. Uh, What an instruction that is. Think about that. Confess your sins in church and do not go to prayer with a guilty conscience. Because we need our consciences to be oriented rightly in the worship service. And we'll talk about that in a a moment. So God's law has been read. uh, We've confessed our sins. And now we have the reading of the gospel. Now here God speaks once again in accordance with this dialogical principle. Because we have a promise in 1 John 1, 8-9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, on the other hand, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God does not want to leave us in a sense of sinfulness and impurity. Because having confessed our sins, those sins are wiped away. And he wants to remind us that Christ is our righteousness, and he atoned for those sins of which he repented. And so Paul can say in Romans 8:1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, in a sense, what we have when the gospel was read is actually an assurance of pardon: that uh, those who have confessed their sins and trust in Christ have been forgiven. And so in some denominations, it'll be the minister might raise his hands and make this proclamation, uh, or um, as generally Antonio or Brendan or I read, when we read this, we will say something along the lines of, if you have confessed your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know. So there's a, this. either way, it's an assurance of pardon, a declaration. And that is God speaking through His Word, that if you have repented, you are forgiven. This is not absolution in the same way as meant by Roman Catholics. It is absolution. This is God saying you saying you are absolved of your sins. But the, the power of this is that it's speech from God in His Word. The power of it is not that you said something with your mouth and then the priest said something with his mouth and then uh, magically the, this the person is cleansed of their sin. No, the, you are cleansed of your sin by virtue of trusting in Christ. And you can know it and be assured of it by virtue that God speaks to you to remind you of that truth. Because it is Christ, his person and his work, that is the substance of the new covenant. That's where the authority comes from. Christ in his word. uh, Not the word of the person standing up front. So this, uh, we can summarize this in just a important thing to think about. When we rightly learn the ongoing role of the law and the gospel in the Christian life, we can, we can understand what is happening in this worship service. We are rightly oriented in the worship service by this section. First, we see the holiness of God. We see our sinfulness. We see our need for a savior. We see that that Savior has been sent to us and that His work is confirmed to us and forgiving us by God's Word speaking to us. And so when we are now in the worship service, after this section, think of it this way. We engage in the worship service neither being troubled by condemnation nor obscured from a true vision of God by a sense of self-righteousness. The reading of the law and the gospel obliterates both of those things. The the law comes and says, no, you are not righteous. The righteous one came down from heaven and by by God's grace has made you righteous. And so your sins are forgiven and you are not under the condemnation of God. So worship God freely with reverence and awe without the weight of Of condemnation and without the curse of self-righteousness. And what a joy it is to go through the rest of the worship service knowing that God has done all of that for us just as we've begun. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you do not invite us into your dangerous presence uh, as it would be without the Lord Jesus Christ but instead you invite us into your presence having clothed us in the righteousness of Christ reminding us that we have forgiveness of sins and that we can this Lord's day as every other day but especially today draw forward with boldness in worship to pour out praise uh, to make our requests known to you to hear your word with humility and with encouragement knowing that you that you care for us that you love us and Uh, We do this as pilgrim people awaiting your return when we see you and will be like you are. And so we await that day. But until then, we thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit who's with us and that you are with us in that way. So bless us today as we worship you in your house as forgiven um, sinners who are also justified through the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.